Welcome to Inspirational Tales. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest on this episode is Jane Elliott. In her early 20s, Jane was diagnosed with melanoma. Since then, Jane has undergone many tests, treatments and surgeries to help her fight the cancer. After struggling with many IV insertions, she eventually received a port, a device implanted in her chest which allows direct access to her veins for her treatments and tests. This experience led her to begin designing clothes that allowed easy access to ports and more recently pick lines, and she has since founded the adaptive clothing line Brighter Day. Hi Jane, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I have actually been following you for a while, like I said before. So all the way from your journey to starting your, what is now a clothing label for adaptive clothing, um, which is fantastic, but we'll get into that obviously in this interview, but I always like to start off right back at the beginning. So can you please start off by telling us a bit about what your life was like before your cancer diagnosis and all of this journey happened for you? I was originally diagnosed in 2006 and I had just moved to Melbourne about a year earlier. So I was having a great time meeting lots of new people and not really focusing on (laughs) uh, my health so much, but I definitely had noticed that a mole that I had on my hand had changed. And so I had been to a couple of different GPs and asked, you know, over the course of a year or so, you know, is it looking okay? It's doing these things. I'm not really sure what to do about it. And about three or four of them actually said, it looks fine, don't worry about it. So I just kept living life. I'd finished as a hairdresser. I had qualified, so I was out and doing some work and going to lots of live gigs and just having a great time. New city, really, really loving it. So when I actually did get the mole removed and it was diagnosed as melanoma stage three, it was a pretty big shock for sure. So when you you noticed it, to then going to the different doctors, to then being diagnosed. How long did that take? I can't say for sure. It was probably a couple of years, to be honest. Oh, and wow. I, yeah, I think that I have had that mole most of my life. So it's just always something that I had had and it was on my hand, very obvious. But once it had started to change, I was kind of a little bit worried about it, but I was also 22. So, you know, you don't really stress too much about these things other than trying to do the right thing and asking, you know, is it okay? So it had been quite a while and to, to the point even where I eventually said to one of them, I actually want you to cut it out because it's annoying me. And she agreed, referred me to somebody else who could do it in their GP office and even he agreed that it looked fine no problem we'll cut it out so it was quite a big shock to everyone when it did come back that it was quite invasive so it was diagnosed after it got cut out and then got sent off to get tested yes so every time a medical person does a little biopsy or anything like that they have to send it off to test even if that wasn't necessarily requested from me it was just me wanting to get rid of something that was ugly and it hurt and it was annoying but they always had to send it off for testing and so the doctor himself he said I am actually really shocked I didn't think it would be but to be honest looking back you know it was literally doing all of the things that they tell you to look out for it had changed color it had changed shape it had changed 
size as well. It was raised, it was itchy, it occasionally bled. So, you know, there's so many of the signs that everyone is sort of told to look out for. So I felt like I really was trying to do the right thing, just wasn't really being followed up on. My goodness. I'm shocked Mm. to hear that. And if it hadn't been for you actually saying, I want it removed, who knows what would have happened. It's actually a story I have heard over and over and over about so many, yeah, so many people with melanoma. If it's removed and it's in its early stage, it's 100% curable. You can get it cut out and that's, it's good, you know. But the later it goes on, the more invasive it becomes. And it's just a, a story that is all too common when people go to a GP, say I'm worried about it. The GP says, it looks fine, don't worry about it. And then three, four, five, however long later, they actually do something about it and it could have been prevented earlier on. So is it better to then go to a specialist clinic? Or what would, with this whole experience yeah. that you've been through, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead a bit here. But no, it's fine. What, did, what would you suggest to be the best thing to do? Because you obviously thought, and I, I would imagine too, yeah, go to the GP, get it checked out, that's the best thing to do. Yeah. Look, my opinion and from experience is that in this situation where it is quite, well, it's very important, a GP is a general practice. And I don't wish to discount any GPs because I know they're really good at their job. But when it comes to specialist things that require specialist training, it's just better to refer. So if your GP is a bit flippant about it or they think, oh, no, don't be silly, don't worry, just ask them to refer you to a dermatologist. You can see some skin specialist GPs, so they have had extra training. And that's something that I would say probably at least, at least do that because they've had really specific training on what to look for. Mm-hmm. There are quite a few skin clinics, skin cancer clinics around. I know where I live anyway. I'm presuming mm. there are quite a few everywhere now. Yeah, that's right. So when you did get diagnosed, what happened then? I was rushed <laughs> in every sense of my life. It was really strange. I had an appointment made for me at the specialist hospital in Melbourne and they said, go here on this day, meet this person and off you go. And I went alone. I was living in Melbourne with a couple of friends, but I don't have family in Melbourne. So I I just kind of thought, okay, well, I'll go. And that was a bad idea. (laughs) It's a very overwhelming experience and you're, you're very quickly thrust into the medical hospital system, the public hospital system. And it went from having a mole cut out to you're now going to have surgery, it could have gone through into the rest of your system, we need to check and we need to do all these tests. I also had a full body photography um, appointment with them at the hospital too. So that requ- And that happened on that day, the very first appointment. So I, <laughs> I've seen the photos and my face is totally blood, like totally red because I've been crying wow. and I'm just scared. Like you can see the look on my face because I, I had no idea what was happening this day. And it was literally just go here, do this, take your clothes off, stand in front of a camera. <laughs> so it wasn't ideal. It was very stressful and scary and I had no idea what melanoma meant really. I, this is the first I'd really had any experience with it. We don't have any family history with it. So I was, you know, 23 and scared. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably the best way to explain it. So 
after that appointment on that day, what was the course of action that was taken in order to help you with the cancer? So I had a surgery planned to remove more of the actual mole, the original mole. The GP had done a good job for what they needed to do, but in terms of how invasive it could be, they needed to do a further surgery and a skin graft. And that at the same time, they also did an injection of dye to travel through from the hand to the closest lymph nodes, which is under the arm. And it shows up if there is any positive lymph nodes that have where melanoma has come up as well. So that was all done in the same day. And it was a lot and it was very painful and stressful again. But it was one of those things, you know, this is what we have to do. We just have to go in and do it. So I recovered from that surgery. My hand and my finger healed quite well. Um, but then the test results showed that one of those lymph nodes was positive melanoma, which meant that I was now classified as stage three uh, when the melanoma has travelled from the original site into lymph nodes. So I had to go back and have another surgery for more lymph nodes. And now I've had more than half of them under one arm removed permanently. At the time, that was the current cause of treatment. At the moment, I think the recommendations have changed a little bit. So just keeping in mind, this was about 16 years ago. So there's been lots of improvements since then. And from there, I saw a medical oncologist regularly for the next five years. Originally, they had said to me, there's no more treatment available for you. We're just going to watch and wait, hope that nothing comes up. We'll do a scan but basically it's just you monitoring your skin and your body and to see if any lymph nodes do come up anymore. I started a clinical trial but only lasted a week because it was awful. So it was something that it was offered to me as a maybe option, but I really it really wasn't likely to improve any medical benefit for me at the time. So I essentially just went back to that hospital every three months for the next five years to have skin checks and medical checks and after that just kind of tried to forget about it <laughs> tried to go back to being in my 20s and enjoy life a little bit and and I was able to it was a really difficult time in the beginning but as time goes on it was a little it got a little bit better so after that 5 years were you then discharged and told like what happened then yeah so the 5 year mark is kind of this gold standard if you've had no signs or no more cancer or no anything else come up in five years they kind of deem you as clear and off you go you're all good if anything comes up let us know but don't come back basically (laughs) (laughs) so to be honest I was happy to see the end of that at the end it really got to be a bit of a burden for me to go in for those appointments which sounds ridiculous but oh no (laughs) every few months yeah and also not knowing as well I guess like not knowing what's going to show up every time you go would be scary yeah it was all of those things actually and the other thing that I hadn't expected was it caused me repetitive trauma going back to the waiting room every single time and at the time the weirdest thing was happening was really I was you know I was 23 to 28 at the time definitely the youngest person there every other person in the waiting room was in their 70s and 80s and so yeah I'm sitting in there and people think I'm the support person or the carer or the daughter of somebody or whatever and then my name gets called and you see people kind of look at me like oh you're the patient 
And that, I think, caused me a lot more stress than almost anything else because I didn't want to be judged or, you know, have these eyes on me thinking, gosh, why do you have skin cancer? Why are you here, you know? So I was quite happy for that five years to be up and not have to go to that back to the hospital all the time. And over time, it did get better. You know, time heals those kind of mental traumas. And I was able to kind of move on with life at the time. So after those five years, you've been discharged. What did you do with your life, with yourself? Yeah, I was running a business. So I continued hairdressing and I was running a mobile hairdressing business in, uh, in Melbourne and it was quite successful. I was really busy. Um, I was probably too busy, but that's fine. You know? <laughs> I loved going out, see live music, went to a lot of music festivals with my friends, just really enjoying Melbourne life as someone in their 20s does and had a really great time. I really loved living there. I don't live there anymore, but It was really a time that I treasure, I have such great memories and really fond of it, really fond. Oh, that's good to hear. But unfortunately, it did come back. It did come back, yeah. How did that come about? How did you find that out? So I actually had stopped hairdressing after about 10 years, decided that I was happy with what I'd done but wanted to move on to do something else and actually applied to uni to go and study to be a midwife. So I had been doing a year of nursing to start with and had transferred into midwifery, really enjoying it. It was really something I was so looking forward to becoming the next career for me. And I had worked really hard to be able to go back to uni because now I'm in my 30s, I had a mortgage, and so I had to kind of make it work. I had two jobs and really busy. So... I literally one day felt a lump under my arm, you know, when I was in the shower and thought, "Uh oh, (laughs) that doesn't feel good. And it is an immediate feeling of everything coming back, rushing back, you know, reliving all of that trauma and knowing deep in my soul that it is exactly what they tell you to look out for. So... I didn't really panic, but I, I knew that it had to be urgent. And I called my dermatologist and said, you know, I really do need to see someone urgently. And they said, oh, no, no, you, we can't get you in for three months. Just what you wanted to hear. And I said, no, no, I'll, I'll be coming in this week, you know. <laughs> so I do actually remember that being a very challenging thing because I'm not really a confrontational person. And for them to turn around and say, no, it's not urgent, and me having to turn back and say, no, this really is urgent, it took a lot and I had to explain it a number of times. So that became sort of the beginning of how I le- had to learn how to advocate for myself over and over. I did get in that week to see my dermatologist. He was great. He immediately said, I believe you, I agree with you, and called the hospital and they took me back as a, a patient sort of straight away and I was in, I think, the following week to have oh, surgery wow. and have it. Actually, no, I had it biopsied first because they do test it before they remove it. Um, how long was this after you had been discharged the first time? 11 years. Oh, okay. So yeah. by this stage, you're probably thinking that everything's going to be fine. Yes, yes. Wow. Because okay. it's pretty uncommon for it to come back that late. If it didn't come back sort of within the five years, 
that's usually obviously you're never going to say never but it's usually the amount of time that they think okay well nothing has shown up in five years at all so it's a pretty good indication but it just goes to show it's never gonna never happen again Mm. (laughs) It, it can definitely come back it's a very insidious disease that once it is in your bloodstream or in your lymphatic system it can unfortunately show up anywhere at any time which is really stressful oh I can I can I can say I I can only imagine like just hearing (laughs) you speaking I'm just yeah trying to imagine how it would feel and being stressed and being scared all the time I would be I'd be like scared all the time every little thing I'd be like oh what's that I think exactly yeah so you were in a hospital to get it removed Yes, so it came back as positive for melanoma. They said, no problem, we, we can do a surgery uh, very soon, we'll take it out. And they did that. So they just actually removed, I think at that time, just that one lymph node, perhaps one more next to it. So just side note, under your arm, we actually have a cluster of uh, lymph nodes, which is quite a big section where they filter the lymphatic system from your torso as well as your arm. So they're coming and going from everywhere. And so they just removed that single one, tested it. Yes, it is positive. And at that time, I was still just a surgical patient. And I had a follow-up with my surgeon. can't remember, but it might have been maybe five or six weeks afterwards. They checked the surgery site, make sure everything's looking okay in terms of healing. And I had said to him at the time, I think there's another lump under the surgery site. And he said, it's probably just scar tissue. I said, okay. I don't think it is, but he wasn't really willing to go any further than that and just said, don't worry, it's just scar tissue, it'll heal. And in the next two months, it didn't heal and it was getting bigger. So there was actually another one that was growing, you know, more tumour within the lymph the lymph node. And so I luckily had a really good relationship with the nurse contact at the hospital and I emailed her and I said, I don't feel right, this isn't right and I need... I need to do something about it. And she was great. She said, no problem. We'll just get your scan done earlier. So we can just put peace of mind. We'll just do it next week. So you don't have to wait another three months. You know, thank God she said that because it did come back positive. It was another one. And unfortunately, that scan at that time showed that it had further traveled through to my lung, which means that it's now considered stage four. Once the lymphatic system can't hold it, from going forward into the rest of your body, it now can travel through the bloodstream and it can sort of attach to any other organ or even just in soft tissue within your body. I don't know what to say to that. I always thought, <laughs> you know, having a chronic illness myself, this is at this advocacy is is common within people with the yeah. chronic illness conditions. But I always presumed maybe naively of me now, now that I've heard what you're saying, that with something Mm. like cancer that is very well known, it's very well studied, it's very common that this sort of thing wouldn't happen. I'm actually really, really shocked and surprised that you were fobbed off so many times for this. Mm. So many times. And it's actually been one of the driving forces for me to now do what I do and speak about it because... I was, again, this is also very silly of me, but I kept going to these appointments alone. (laughs) I'm laughing now, but (laughs) like it was, it's actually really silly because 
at the time when you hear news like this, you you're going to be upset, scared, angry, you know, worried. All these emotions hit you at once, so you can't really think clearly. Mm-hmm. And then to be able to have to advocate for yourself and stand up for yourself against somebody in a powerful medical position is very, very challenging. Yeah. And then if you do, then for them to fob you off again, it kind of just keeps making it harder and harder every single time. I won't say that being able to stand up for myself has become easy. It has taken a long time and it's been very stressful and I've often had to report things so that it will get followed up on. But I think it's really important that the medical profession can hear about these stories from patient perspectives and understand that a simple, no, no, it'll be fine, is actually can be quite damaging, not only in a medical sense, but in a a mental health sense as well. Yep, I completely agree. Mm -hmm. So when you did finally, again, be listened to, and you found out that it had travelled, unfortunately, to your lungs, what happens then? Now that they have this information, what can they do? So from there, I then changed from a surgical patient to a medical patient. So in oncology, you have the different streams. You may have a cancer diagnosis and you will only ever be a surgical patient. And that you could only be a medical patient, which means chemotherapy or systemic treatments, that kind of thing. At the time, I had only been surgical and I was then moved to the medical section where I needed to speak to a medical oncologist because now the treatment changed from removing cancer to treating it within your system. I spoke to the same nurse again and she was so good because I said to her, I'm just struggling with all of these doctors that aren't listening to me. I need someone to listen to me. And she said, with your permission, what I'll do is I will go and find the right doctor that I think will match to you, your personality and someone who is willing to have these conversations and make sure that you're not fobbed off again. So I like from everywhere she she did everything for me like that was actually just such an amazing and caring thing for someone to do I understand it's her job but at the time when lots of things weren't happening she really took care of me mm-hmm. so she found a really great oncologist who was very willing to listen to my perspective I suppose and also understand where I've come from from being fobbed off so many times so what happens is they explore the options from a medical point of view, what treatments are likely to respond best given the disease, the progression, my age, my other health conditions, what I'm willing to try. And what I decided on in the beginning was actually a clinical trial. The reason we decided that was that it wouldn't exclude me from doing any other treatments after that, but it gave me a really good shot at something new. And melanoma research is actually really progressive at the moment. There's a lot happening. So that's what we decided on. So how did the trial go? The trial was tough. Actually, it was really tough. I was thrown into a really robust schedule, which meant that I had to come into the hospital multiple days per week. And then the schedule changed every four weeks or something like that. I was on a drug that was given intravenously and then I was on tablet treatments at the same time. I had to give feedback to the 
clinical trial team about my physical state, my mental state, all of these things that were going on. So it wasn't just as easy as receiving medication. It was a lot of work that went along with it, which I totally understand. Unfortunately, it became, it caused me a lot of side effects. And the really frustrating thing about having this diagnosis was that my actual cancer hadn't caused me any pain or side effects or anything like that before. The only thing I literally found was this lump, you know. And so now all of a sudden the treatment is causing me pain and horrendous side effects. And so it just makes you feel awful because you think, I know I'm doing the right thing. Intellectually, I know that this is the right thing to do, but I'm literally poisoning myself and making myself feel worse. And that was a very big hurdle to try and get over. It took about 12 weeks, I think, for me to really reach my limit. And I had to sort of say to my doctor, I'm in too much pain. I can't function and even just get through the day at this stage. And so my mental health is really taking a toll because I can't push through that. So he was really good and he said, let's do, let's get to the point where we do your first scan and we'll see if there's any improvement, there's any change, then we've got some more information to make a decision. In the end, um, I decided to come off it because I couldn't handle the pain. I had a skin condition that had flared up and it was immensely painful that I couldn't walk and I couldn't really take any painkillers that was going to alleviate it even just a little bit. So I came off that. The scan had actually showed some improvement, so that was great news. And it's nice to see that my body would respond to at least some treatment. So that was really positive. From there, I moved on through about four or five different treatments, just trying one and waiting to see if it would work. And if it did, keep going. And then if it didn't, we had to switch. And that carried on for the next, probably the next three years, I would say. Until you were able to find something that you could deal with that was helping and keeping you at bay. Is that correct? Yeah. That's right. So it's a combination of, yes, how much can you withstand in terms of side effects? And also, is it going to work just for the short term or is it going to work long term? How do you know? (laughs) Can't know. I had one, I remember being on one treatment that was given to me. It's one that had worked really well for a lot of melanoma patients at the time and had become really well publicized. There was a a famous football player that has been treated with this drug and it, you know, cured him essentially. And so there was a lot of hype about it. So I was really excited about it too, obviously, but the stats are still pretty low. It's actually only around 35 to 40% of people that will respond to it. So it's still quite low. Um, unfortunately, I was in the other, you know, in the 60%. And after about five weeks, I could physically tell that it wasn't working because I could see and touch soft tissue tumors on my body and they were growing by the week. And that was really, really confronting. Yes, your face yeah. did exactly everything. So I haven't said anything, but yeah. no one can see me. I'm like a <laughs> shocked face. Yeah. And that was something that I probably wasn't prepared for. I think when you think it's internal, you don't get to see it. It's whatever. Yeah. But I literally had a couple that were close to my spine that I could touch and they were big. You know, they were probably maybe a grape, size of a grape. And I'd said to my doctor, it's not working. And I can see. And he said, 
takes a little bit of time. We've just got to do it. And I did trust him, but I pushed back and I said, it's not working. If we wait any longer, this is going to get bad. And that scan after that did show that it was actually definitely not working and we were in a bit of trouble. And from that point onwards, it's been a little bit of luck and a little bit of good timing and speaking to the right people who've got the right access to different medications and trials as well as compassionate access programs. So sometimes, you know, the drugs are available from the drug company because we can't get them any other way. So when in amongst all this did you decide to move back to Queensland? So I'm originally not from Queensland, but I'm originally from Canberra. So I've lived in Melbourne for about 14 years and my parents now live in Queensland. So I was at the point where I had been on stable treatment for about two years with manageable side effects and good scans. So either stable scans or slightly progressively improving, which was really good. I had gained a fair bit of independence back. I was living on my own again, which I was really loving, but I had a really close-knit you know, group of friends and some people around supporting me, which was really good. I had a scare when I had one scan came up and it showed a new growth. And my doctor said, this could be the point where this drug starts to stop working, which happens. Some of them don't work forever. They just work for a period of time. And he said, this is about average. It was about two years. This is about the average time that this drug will work for people before they have to move on to something else. We talked about what the something else would be and what the next in line treatment options were. And they're pretty intense and they're rough on the body. And he said, I don't think it's a good idea that you are living alone. I think that you're going to need a lot more support because it may involve more hospitalizations. You'll probably get very sick. Living alone in this situation is not really going to be advisable. So we talked about the options there and then I spoke to mum and dad and, and said that, you know, this is where I'm at. Maybe it's a good idea that I move now. So I'm doing it before any of this kind of happens rather than it happening in a rush and the chaos of me being really unwell. So it's not the easiest decision I've ever made. I really miss living in Melbourne and I didn't want to leave. But I know that I couldn't have stayed where I was and gotten through what then happened, you know, in the next sort of two years. So how long ago was this? I moved in December 2019. Okay, so we're saying nearly three years ago. Nearly three, yeah. So those couple of years that you were just saying after you moved it were going to be a bit rough, were they rough? How were they for you? Yeah, in the beginning they were fine, but then pandemic started so that was a bit weird but oh I didn't even think of that yeah (laughs) (laughs) luckily for me it was pure good timing and luck that I decided to move then because Mm. again had I stayed in Melbourne it would have been obviously it was insanely difficult for so many people in Melbourne but having to get through medical treatment like this and be living alone through lockdown just would have been very traumatic so very grateful that that happened when it did. I started a new treatment in, I think it was around August of 2020. So I'd been here about eight months, started on this new treatment that we, we knew was coming, we knew could be a bit rough, and I actually kind of sailed through it, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> so 
it involves receiving the treatment once every three weeks, four times. So it only is a 12-week period. But the idea with immunotherapy is that it's teaching your body how to look after itself. So the idea is that the treatment is long-lasting after you stop actually receiving it. And we got through to the fourth session, which most people only get between two and three. And my doctor was very shocked, (laughs) my doctor here in, in Queensland, and very surprised but happy. Great, let's do it. In my mind, I was thinking, that's not good. That means it's not working. But actually, it was working, which was really, really good. And the side effects didn't hit me until about three weeks after the 12 oh. weeks. <laughs> so I thought I was in the clear, which is dangerous because you think it's all good. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was struck down with colitis for eight weeks and it was really, really difficult, actually. I lost a lot of weight very quickly. I couldn't keep my nutrition up. Even though I had a good appetite, I just couldn't keep my nutrients up. And unfortunately, I ended up fainting one day and hitting my head, ended up in mm. hospital. Yeah, because I was so essentially malnourished and dehydrated because it's just really, really rough on the body. So from there, it took a lot to sort of get back and get my energy back. It did eventually just stop randomly, which is strange, but okay. <laughs> and... I unfortunately injured my ankle when I collapsed, so injury, (laughs) yeah, it just is kind of a bit of a pile-on sometimes. There's one thing on top of another on top of another, but I think we got about maybe another six months later and the scans were looking good until I had to sort of move on to the next treatment again, so it continues. It's it's on and on and on, and I'm on my potentially eighth different treatment at the moment. So they have to keep changing. Yeah, I mean, ideally not, but it depends on so many factors. There's so many things that go into what treatment a person gets and why and when and for how long. And also as research improves, obviously new things come out and hopefully things that are available will be an improvement on the past. Our bodies are really smart, is all I can say, is that, (laughs) you know, when cancer is cells that are dividing rapidly as they shouldn't be our bodies kind of have to just adapt and deal but when we give them a treatment to kill these rapid dividing cells often our body is like no no we don't want this treatment what are you doing and so it teaches itself to reject the treatment it's a really strange thing and it's basically just tolerance you know your body just builds up a tolerance to this medication and unfortunately that's common I would say in melanoma treatment at the moment chemotherapy isn't used to treat melanoma really at all unless it's kind of a very last ditch effort because it's not really responsive to that and so I think that's one thing a lot of people don't know about melanoma is that yeah chemotherapy isn't used for every single cancer it's very common obviously but it's not very effective for melanoma treatment so when in this journey that you've been on, did you start to learn about ports and pick lines and everything that you're now, you've now ventured into with your clothing line? It was pretty early on, I will say. So I was diagnosed in July and by October I had a port. So I had been hospitalised quite a number of times in that first three to four months because that was when I was starting on that clinical trial and 
because I was receiving IV treatment as well as having many blood tests and receiving other medications, I was becoming really difficult to cannulate and it was causing me so much pain and then the anxiety would like grow as they were trying to cannulate me and then it would get worse. It's just an awful spiral. So I feel for nurses having to cannulate people because mm-hmm. it's very difficult and when you've got anxiety around it, it's you know 20 times worse. I had an experience which unfortunately, it, it really shouldn't happen to anybody, but I know it does. I was in hospital I'd been admitted through emergency and then put onto the ward in the general hospital. And before I was transferred to the cancer hospital, I they had attempted to cannulate me and I had been attempted on nine times. Ow. Yeah. And so I do know now that per person that attempts it, generally I think each hospital has a policy, but it should be around twice. So if they've attempted twice, they have to go get another person to try and it wasn't it was the same person that had tried on me this right. nine times it was the middle of the night and i was very distressed and i was in a lot of pain and i had no one with me again so you're in a very vulnerable position and i actually had a nurse unit manager who wasn't the person trying to cannulate me she came in and said if we don't get this in you can't continue any of this treatment and you're dehydrated, so we have to get this in now. You're being ridiculous. And I have such a clear memory of that because there was no care mm. at that point. Nobody was actually caring for me. All they need, knew was that they had to get this cannula in to be able to do their job. What ended up happening was I was transferred over to the cancer hospital and was so upset as they were wheeling me over and then as I was received into that ward, the nurses came, kind of said, you know, what's been going on? And I showed them my arm and it was just bruised and it was, oh, my gosh, it was awful. And they said, we're going to get we're going to get the technician now. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I know that they can do it by ultrasound. They can get a cannula in with an ultrasound machine so they can okay. see your veins. And she got that in first go. <laughs> and I just thought, gosh, why didn't they do this the first time, <laughs> you know? So that experience probably, I mean, definitely made everything worse in terms of my anxiety to try and get cannulated every time. And I started doing some research. I also have a couple of friends who are nurses. My auntie is a nurse. So I sent around some messages and just said, what's your suggestion here? What can I do? Should I get a pick? What, What else, you know, are the options? And got some great suggestions there and brought it up with my doctor the next time I, I saw him and said, I want to get a port because this is getting ridiculous. And he agreed. And I think the next week I was booked in for surgery to get it done. So, you know, looking back, it's unfortunate that someone would have to go through all of that experience for that person to actually think, what else can I do instead of a nurse suggesting maybe this person needs a port mm. or maybe they would be better off with a pick. But anyway, it works out for the best (laughs) in the end and I did a bit of research on ports I made made sure that I asked for a water cath that can receive the central line contrast because I can use it now for my CT scans my PET scans all those sorts of things and so again that was something that wasn't really talked about a lot they would just you know in the queue off you go get your port 
but I had a couple of people just say, research this, look into this, make sure you can ask for that. Mm. So, yeah, I'm glad that I did that and I, I now use it for every single scan, every blood test, all my treatments. Even if I go to emergency, they try not to use it, but I put my foot down now because mm. it's just going to be a better outcome for everybody. Now, can you just explain to anyone listening that doesn't know what we're talking about here, what is a port? Chest port is a medical device that is implanted surgically under the skin in around your chest muscle. So it's probably a little bit below your collarbone and it can be really anywhere along the chest line. Most people will get it on the right side so it's away from the heart, but if you've had other surgeries on your right, they can put on the left. The way it works is it has a tubing that is inserted into a major vein that then feeds into the top of the heart. So when you're withdrawing blood, you're getting blood straight from the heart but also when you're receiving treatment or any medication, it's going straight into the bloodstream and it's a very easy way to receive treatment that way. The way it's accessed is a nurse that has specialist training will puncture a needle straight through your skin into the port and it kind of locks in. So while you're having treatment, the port and needle remain clicked together and then once you finish treatment, they can deaccess it. So they clip the needle out and then it's all done. So it's really handy. It's been really good. They don't miss. It's not really that painful to have. I get a tiny little sting when the needle goes through the skin and then that's it. I don't really feel anything after that. That's great. So where did the idea for your for Brighter Day, your clothing line, which you have adaptive clothing to help people that have ports and these sort of things to help them access the nurses to access the sites where did this idea come from so it came from my own frustration not being able to find clothes that worked well for when I needed to go and get treatment I really like wearing t-shirts I'm like a jeans and t-shirt kind of girl so every time I just rock up to treatment and they would try and get the access you know get the needle in at the right spot but I was constantly stretching out the neckline of my tops and ruining them because you have to pull down your shirt enough so that the nurse can do a sterile wash and then access the needle plus then put a sticky over the top of it so the alternative to that was to lift up my shirt and I'm in a public hospital so I'm in full view of everybody and I don't really want to do that so to have things that were modest but also comfortable that gave enough access, I was pretty limited and I would, I think I wear singlets occasionally, so they're like low-cut singlets. But if you've ever spent any time in a hospital, you'll know that they are freezing cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would have to wear so many layers just to make sure I was warm enough but they could access my port. I was speaking with my mum one day and I said, I wonder if there's just a way we can just put a zip somewhere that makes it a bit easier and she said oh so is it into a t-shirt for you and so that's kind of where it started she got two t-shirts she put zips on the diagonal down towards my port from the neckline so as soon as I unzipped it there was a lot more of my skin exposed that the nurse could easily access it but I was still covered up and it was still quite modest 
And the first time I wore it to get it accessed, the nurse was in, she was so impressed. She <laughs> thought, this is the best. Like, I don't have to hold your shirt aside. You don't have to be uncomfortable. You know, it's easy to tuck in. And then as soon as we were done, I could zip it back up again and it was essentially hidden. So I didn't have to walk around with this thing exposed through the hospital or other people looking at you. So it served two purposes, which was really good. I stayed comfortable enough to have the access done at one point, but then also could keep warm through the rest of the treatment. So from there, I actually made a couple of more, a couple more shirts for myself, and I started looking around to see if there was any other clothes that would do this. And to be honest, I couldn't really find a lot in Australia. There are a couple of brands that are in America, and I think maybe one that's really prominent in the UK. And they make hoodies and jumpers that do this type of thing. But I was really looking for something that was a bit more fun and nice and colourful and that would still serve the function but be something a little bit fashionable, not just a hoodie. So that's how I came up with it. So how's it progressed to today? You've actually come quite a long way since the idea. It's called Brighter Day. What does it look like now? It has come a long way, yes. It's taken quite a long time. I would say it's probably been three years in the making and that includes lots of time just researching what's already around and also what a good way to create functional items of clothing just in the way that zips and studs and buttons and things like that can be used. I worked with an agency for a little bit over a year to develop the designs that I've come up with. So we've got five designs that I've launched in the first collection in two different colors and that includes a top and a dress that have a zip for port access but then also a dress that has a tie that you can undo the entire top of the dress and pull it aside and then you just tie it back up again so it's really unassuming to I suppose the general public if you were just wearing it out in public nobody would know that that's what its function is And so I really tried to keep that in mind when I'm designing because I want these clothes to be able to be worn while you're at treatment, but you can then wear them out if you're going out to lunch or wear them if you're going back to work and they just look like everyday clothes. So we've launched with the first collection in May this year and I'm currently in development with the second collection, just looking for some spring and summer items at the moment and then looking forward to winter next year as well. So there's a lot of forward planning that has to happen through the seasons, which is something I didn't know, but have learned pretty quickly that that's how it has to go. Has fashion been something you've always been interested in? I think it has, but not in a traditional way, maybe. I have always known how to sew. My mum taught me when I was a teenager and I'm actually quite tall and tall for a woman. And so I've always had to either adapt my own clothes or sew them so that they would fit properly, especially (laughs) when I was you know, in my late teens, early 20s, because, you know, there just really wasn't clothing for tall people then. (laughs) So I think fashion in that sense, being able to create my own has always been there for me. And I like to always find a way that I can do things that fit for me or fit for my purpose, not necessarily fashion in its sense of following trends all the time or, you know, being up to date with designers or things like that. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more of an accessible way for me to just enjoy clothing and be comfortable in what I wear. Sounds like exactly what you're doing now as well. Yeah, yep, exactly. Because it's very functional what you're doing and practical yet still fashionable. 
Where did yeah. the name come from? I absolutely love it. Yeah. Thank you. It's really, I'm so glad that I stuck with it. So I originally was sewing headbands and scrunchies and this started when I was receiving treatment back in Melbourne. I'd started living on my own again and I needed a way to keep me busy during the day that wasn't really laborious in energy. So everything was kind of an easy day for me, but it gave me something to do. And I also wanted something bright to wear because whenever I wear colours to the hospital, I would always get a compliment. So a nurse just passing by, oh, I love your, I love your scarf or I love your skirt or, oh, that doesn't that just bring out your eyes or something. And that just made me feel so seen and it made me feel really nice. And in a hospital that has grey and white and boring old walls and everything's really dim and gloom, it was really nice to bring some colour to that. And what I noticed was that it was actually improving the nurse's day as well. So it was really this like win-win situation. They would compliment the dress or whatever I was wearing and say, gosh, isn't it nice to see some bright colours or something? And then they would always smile and go, oh, yes, you're in that dress again, you know, and that's really lovely. And so that's where it started. It, It came from a way that it brightened my day. And I could see that it was having a carry-on effect to all the people that were in that medical bubble, I suppose, where I was in. And so I really wanted that feeling to be carried forward into this brand as it is with clothing because I still experience it today. You know, like last week I went in to have a scan and so I wore a really beautiful bright colored dress not one of my brand dresses but just another colorful one and one of the nurses passing by oh my gosh it's so lovely I just love it you know and then when I left the appointment she said it again she goes I'm so happy to see this it's made my day thank you so much so bringing color into clothing is something I really wanted to do and just the feeling of having everybody's day brightened that's where it came from I love that. I love hearing that. So where do you see this going for the future? Do you have big plans? Or Yeah, I do have big plans. I do feel like it's not going to happen quickly and that's okay. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of different angles to it. Obviously, the clothing and having accessible clothing for people in this situation who have pick lines and ports is important to me because obviously my that's my personal experience with it. But it's opened my eyes to so many other options for clothing and how it doesn't really work for a lot of people and it could be whether it's someone who is seated because they are in a wheelchair either full-time or part-time and so having clothes that are more comfortable around the waist and don't ride up but also maybe easier clothes that they can put on themselves so it's opened up a whole new world for me to continue to research and that's where I'd like to keep going with that is looking into how clothes can help your day rather than hinder Colour, obviously, I really want to keep going with colour. I want to keep going with things that are stylish and that people are really proud to wear. I find that a lot of clothing that is in the medical sense is so boring and bland (laughs) and I kind of get it, but I also don't want to be wearing it all the time. So let's bring some colour into it. (laughs) And the main thing for me personally has also been to create a business and a job, I suppose, that I can work around my illness and also chronic pain which I am sort of suffering from in the last couple of years which doesn't seem to be going away 
So I want to create a workplace that gives me flexibility and also that if I can eventually employ people, create a flexible workplace for other people who are going through similar things. It's definitely a space that I think is starting to be spoken about a little bit. And I really wanted to highlight um, Dylan Alcott as well, being Australian of the Year this year. He's just opened this conversation right up, which is amazing. So whatever he does, I'm kind of like following along going, oh, I really want to listen to what he's talking (laughs) about because I know it's so important. So I'm learning too and I, I want to keep learning. I want to keep learning about how other people's illnesses affect them daily and potentially how things like clothing or accessories can help them and help their day improve or even if it's just wearing colour and that can help their mood improve. So I, I do see big things but at the same time as dreaming big, I'm working small. You know, I do need to take my own energy into account and make sure that I can sustain it long term. Well, sounds incredible what you're doing and your vision and also the fact that you, you know, you're obviously going through things yourself, but you're looking out at how can you help other people and how is this affecting other people? And I absolutely love hearing that from you. So well done with everything you're doing. Oh, thank you. I just think it's a nice that there's a big community and a big support for each other within Either you're in the chronic illness space or chronic pain or disability space. And I think that the more that we can kind of band together to support each other, it will we'll be able to rise up that way. We need to be able to be seen and have these experiences heard so that people potentially who aren't experienced it do understand a little bit yeah. and can see why things need to change. But it definitely starts from the inside. So I'm, I'm happy to keep, keep going with it for sure. So I've got one final question for you that I ask everyone at the end of their interviews. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, no. Uh, It came up a couple of times in this. Take somebody with you to your medical appointment. (laughs) (laughs) I know that might sound a bit silly, but it, it actually... It didn't happen to me once. I went to so many appointments on my own because probably because I thought I was strong enough and it, it'll be fine, like it doesn't matter. I'm strong enough to go. It's just a medical appointment. But I think actually that no matter what the news is going to be, it's better that you've got someone there to either debrief with or to support you or they can step up and take charge of the appointment. There's just so many times now since that I have made sure to take somebody with me and I'll just say, can you take notes because I'm not in the right headspace to do this and I have a very bad bad memory at the moment so I'm not going to be able to remember everything. Or it might be, you know, we prepare some questions in advance and then in the appointment they'll have the notepad. I'll just say to them at any time jump in and ask that question because I will forget. That's a really good idea. Yeah, it's something that is you know, I'm still learning myself. I don't always do it now. But at the times that we have done that, it's much better because then also it also means that the person that you take is getting first-hand information yeah. too. They're not getting information passed on through you while you're having to process it and also decide what happens next and all of those sorts of things. So prepare in advance, take them with you, take a notepad and let them know that if you're comfortable with them asking questions on your behalf to do it because they might think of something you haven't thought of. Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us today. And I will pop 
uh, Jane's details in the show notes for this episode, as I always do, if you want to get in contact with her or have a look at her clothing line, which they're so beautiful. I love the dresses. Thank you. (laughs) But thank you so much for speaking out, sharing your journey, but also advocating for other people and helping so many other people along the way as well. Thank you so much, Jess. It was so lovely to chat. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inspirational Tales. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could please share it with your family and friends so that we can inspire more people. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please don't forget to leave us a rating or review and make sure that you have subscribed or followed the podcast on whichever platform that you are listening to it on so that you can stay up to date as new episodes are released. Thanks again and I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Inspirational Tales.